It was a very bright, shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, December 13th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Live chat's jam-packed. We've got a jam-packed show tonight. Gus Malzahn is out at Auburn. Tom Herman has survived for the time being at Texas. Also, Florida just kind of imploded on itself like a dying star last night against LSU. And believe me, we've got a lot to say about that game from multiple angles. North Carolina committed... Essentially what would be described as legal assault against Miami for the better part of four hours yesterday afternoon. We got a lot of week 15 takeaways in general. So I'm going to hit a number of games tonight. Got so many different angles, got so many different directions that we need to go. And we've got a best bet. Wasn't our best day yesterday? Yes, uh, by and large, yesterday just kind of we wish we could make it disappear. However, today is so jam-packed that we can kind of gloss over that. And it's been a really good season for us anyway. So we can gloss over that. I... um. You know, I was thinking as I was driving in, what can you promise, really? You can't promise many things. On this show, I can promise, well, unless technical difficulties get in the way, that Director Colin and I are going to be here Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday night for you, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, where we can promise we're going to try and put together a good show. But, you know, I was looking around Twitter yesterday, and a lot of you noticed what I noticed. There's no need to give any name by credibility on this show, but you noticed a lot of folks we're highlighting some within our world, within our industry, that seem to just flat out hate what they get to do for a living, which is the way I look at it, getting to do it. And so here's what I realized we can promise you. We love college football, and we don't insult your intelligence in saying that either. Like, we genuinely love it, kind of freaked out that we get paid a little bit of money to talk about what we'd be talking about for free anyway. You know, if I wasn't sitting here and I wasn't working at 24-7, I'd probably be eating barbecue somewhere down in Georgia, still talking about what I'm going to talk about tonight anyway. It's just now I get to have some fancy graphics and a nice little colorful monitor behind me and a microphone. But that's about it. That's the only difference. So we love it here. So if, if you're of the mentality, which most of you are, as far as I can tell, that you kind of just love this sport and really are tired of getting slapped in the face, theoretically or uh, figuratively, by people who you can tell cover it but hate it and really wish they were anywhere else, this is the place for you. And if that doesn't appeal to you, that doesn't appeal to you. Also, before we dive in, we're about to do a jam-packed show. So before we dive in, took about a week's break last week, had a busy week. And to be honest with you, got a busy week coming up this week. However, I am opening slots back up. Anybody out there who is interested in the least bit in the sports media industry, you want to start a YouTube channel, podcast, whatever, any road you want to go down, you just don't quite know how to Put pen to paper and uh, maybe you got the dreams, but you can't necessarily land them. Well, we'll talk. So email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com or on Twitter at LateKickJosh. These are one-on-one Zoom sessions. They've been very, very beneficial for yours truly as well as, well, hopefully, a lot of the folks that I've talked to. I've done several dozen of those at this point. They've been really, really fun. Not a fun start to the show tonight, though, but one that we've got to do. So I thought that we were going to be leading the show tonight with Florida LSU. That's what I thought. And then, about 2 o'clock, the news comes down. 
Auburn has fired Gus Malzahn after eight seasons as head coach on the Plains. Final record here, 68-35 and 35 overall, 39-27 and 27 in SEC play. You heard, a lot of you noticed because you DM'd me, you heard my tone change on this uh, about last week, around this time last week. And the reason my tone changed is because up until that point I had told you I'll be very surprised. I think I may have even used the word shocked. I'll be shocked if they make a move on him. <laughs> I wasn't messing with you. I was going to be shocked. And I, I'm not shocked today only because the tone change last week was due to some people pretty close to this situation saying, hey, this is not hypothetical. This is not down the road. Like This is now. There is a real good chance that he's going to lose his job. I still was in the need to see it to believe it camp, but I kind of changed my tone. And, and some of you felt that if you watch every show, listen to every show, you pay attention. So a lot of you were asking me behind the scenes, you were DMing me, emailing me, hey, why do you sound so different all of a sudden? Do you know something? Well, I didn't know anything per se. I knew people who knew things per se, and they were they were you know changing their tone. So I did so accordingly. I think Gus Malzahn's pretty surprised too. Sometimes you you think, oh, if I could only talk to the head coach whose job is on the line, I could have all the information. A lot of times they're just as in the dark as you are, and maybe I am. Obviously, they don't find out until the guillotine comes down. That was graphic, but necessary. And so I, I think Gus Malzahn thought that he was safe this year. Now, you're never fully safe at Auburn. Everyone knows that. He knows that all too well. And he's played those a couple of times into being parlayed into contract extension. So he knows how to play the game, and he's got the right folks representing him. I think he's kind of surprised at this. Shocked? Maybe not. Kind of surprised. But I'll tell you what I was told last week. Tweeted this out earlier. I'll reiterate it for those of you who aren't following me on there, at Late Kick Josh, by the way. I was told by the same folks who indicated that the wheels were in motion here, maybe irreversibly so, and as it turns out, that was right. I was told by those same folks, if they make a move, and that was a big if at the time, if they make a move, you can rest assured it means they think they already have the replacement locked up. Now, a couple of things could be true. Okay, because I don't know where this stands right now. A couple of things could be true. They could feel that way, and they could also get burned. Because unless you've got pen on paper, I mean, unless you've got them on the jet and they're flying down to Auburn, Alabama, well, nothing's really locked up. And a lot of times, these kinds of situations are used for the big L word. It's very important. You don't get to enjoy it very often, but when you get leverage, you use it. And some folks even go as far as to exploit it for their own personal gain. How dare they? You're looking at one of them on the bottom of your screen right now, by the way. So I don't necessarily know that there's anything locked up. I can tell you there are some people who believe that there are things locked up. However, it would be very irresponsible of us to just throw around names here because I don't believe that there is any name that's been locked up. So we'll, we're going to have some time to talk about that. And I'll do so in just a second, actually. But I want to ask you something because let's talk about Malzahn for just a second. Had a lot of takes on him today from a lot of different angles. So I want to ask you whether you're an Auburn fan, whether you went to Auburn, whether you went to Kennesaw State and it's just up the road and so you just pull for him. I don't care if you're a Michigan State fan and you've never even been to the state of Alabama. Everybody, I want you to ask yourself this question. You watch college football. You've seen this dude. You've got an opinion of him. He's been around a long time. Do you think he failed at Auburn? you think he's a failure? Because I asked that question to some folks today, and I was very surprised at the not only the differences in the responses, but how strongly opinionated everyone was in their response. There were very few fence riders here, in other words. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion. I've, I got my own head coach power ratings. Malzahn is a top 20 head coach currently. Like today, he got fired. He is currently in my top 20 
of head coaching power ratings in all of FBS, so all of major college football. He's in my top 20. He just got fired. So obviously, I'm not one who looks at him as a failure. A lot of people do look at him as a failure, and I'm just going to give you, again, my humble opinion here. I think that displays an utter lack of grasp of how insanely hard the job at Auburn is. It is the pound for pound, I've told you before, hardest job in America. It's not harder than Kent State, but yet Kent State, they don't expect titles there. They expect you to contend at Auburn. At Kent State, you're not parked down the road from the greatest head coach in the history of college football. You are at Auburn. At Auburn, you're also recruiting heads up against four of the biggest six or seven recruiting powers in America right now in Bama, Georgia, LSU, and Texas A&M. So unless you're matching them, you know at the start of every year, Malzahn's known this for a while at the start of every year, he's going to be at a roster disadvantage against about a third of his schedule. Now, you could look at me and you could say, well, they should have recruited better. Okay, I'll grant you that. I'm not saying it's impossible. But what I want you to understand is, and I want to say this very slowly, there are some coaches out there that you may consider not top 20, not top 25, but top 10, who would have long since wilted under what that guy was having to deal with year in and year out. You don't believe that, and I know you don't, and that's fine. But some of your darlings out there that are rated solidly top 10 would have wilted under the Auburn spotlight. The Auburn spotlight is unique for several reasons unto any in the sport. That's not meant in a pejorative context. Sometimes it can be. I think it's a great place, but it's a very unique place. There is no other culture like that. So it's got its its own little world down there. Grew up very close to it, intimately familiar with it. You know my stance on expectations and standards. If you've watched this show any length of time, I'm not that guy that a lot of other folks out there are who make fun of fans when they get mad when their team doesn't win. I appreciate the passion. I appreciate the expectation. And I've told you before, and for those of you who are new, I'll tell you again. Sometimes you buy yourself the ability and the freedom to have sky-high expectation. The way you buy those things are really twofold. You can buy them, obviously, financially, and then you can buy them through emotion. When you have financially and emotionally invested in mass, an entire culture, a fan base, in other words, when you have invested top dollar and you have emotionally invested to the best of your abilities, it's only right. In any other walk of life, if you invest at an A-level, you want A-level returns. That's just common sense. Anyone who's gone through a high school economics class understands that. But here's a little bit different world that we're living in in college football, and that's you got to ask what's feasible, what's realistic to expect. It's, it's okay if you've invested and you say, we're, I, got a, I got a buddy across the street who's a Georgia grad, and I do everything that they do. He tells me what they donate, and he tells me what they're asked to do and what they're asked to give, and, and my Bama buddy, the same way, and I do what they do. I want returns like they have. Completely natural to feel that way. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to dump on you because you feel that way. What is feasible given the current reality? Because that's the question everyone in the Auburn world is asking themselves right now. There are a lot of opinions out there, and a lot of the opinions involve that man, Gus Malzahn, not living up to it. So I want you to keep in mind, when I tell you this is the hardest job in America, I don't mean any, I don't mean it's impossible to succeed there. I just mean the hurdles are very high. And as we're denigrating Gus Malzahn, not all of you, but some of you, I also want you to know some things that aren't readily apparent if you just turn on CBS or ESPN for three and a half hours on a Saturday. That guy lagged resource-wise significantly in some cases behind all those big rivals that I was talking about. 
Auburn has put lipstick on a lot of pigs down there, and behind the scenes, they are woefully inept. There is some catch-up happening, but they still got a long way to go in some other areas. You have got a Taj Mahal in Tuscaloosa, and you've got Georgia, who has separated themselves, trying to keep up with Alabama. LSU is the same. Texas A&M is the same. They haven't kept up at Auburn. That's just the painful reality. The folks there know it. The folks closer, closer you get to the program, the more intimately familiar they are with that reality. Here was the problem. It's very layered. It's never as easy as, is he good enough or is he not good enough? You have got and have had for quite a while some big money folks around the Auburn program who were not coming off their wallet until Gus Malzahn was out of there. They did not view him as the long-term answer to their program. I'm not one to tell anyone how else to spend their money. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think anyway. You've earned it over the years. It's your right to spend it however you want to. And so a lot of the investment that was needed was kind of held hostage, and this was one of the terms. You, Hey, you want seven numbers on this check instead of just mid-sixes every year? Well, you put the right guy in the driver's seat, and then maybe we'll revisit that. COVID or no COVID, maybe we'll revisit that. So expectations are fine, but now what are we going to get here? What, what's, what's the reality? What's feasible? And then who's out there that is a definitive upgrade? Why didn't he succeed, in other words? So what has to happen? Why weren't he? Why weren't they winning enough under Gus Malzahn? Well, number one, they never got quarterback figured out. Uh, Gus Malzahn, the only times, and this has been well chronicled by this point, the only times he's really won big down there, it was with transfer quarterbacks. He had to go get someone else's, and it was an already made product or hopefully close to already made, and then he brought him in and he won. Think Nick Marshall, think Jared Stidham. You get the idea. There was never a homegrown product. The closest they came to that was, well, the current product, Bo Nix. I mean, that's... That's the closest that they came to it, and I think that there have been uh, very mixed results, to say the least, on the field from him his first two years. Number two, they never recruited well enough. Now, this is where, when you start to attract another coach, this is where you got to try and think differently. Try and, th- try and think on a different plane than just an observer. Think about yourself as a prime candidate for the Auburn job. And think about what I just said. I just told you they hadn't recruited well enough. Well, if I'm a candidate for this job, I'll just go pull up 247sports.com right quick and I'll say, what in the world? They were number eight that year, number 10, number 12, number nine. It looks like they recruit around a top 10 level every year. That's right. And it's not good enough. You want to look at the teams ahead of them? Bama's up there every year. Georgia's up there every year. LSU is going to be up there every year. Texas A&M is going to be up there every year. You got to play them every year. This is the only program in the United States of America that has the unenviable task of facing Georgia, Alabama, LSU, and Texas A&M every single year. And so if you're not recruiting at a top five level perennially, and you're not just dominating the transfer market, or hopefully both of those things, chances are you're going to find yourself at a roster disadvantage two, three, or maybe four times per year. It's not sustainable to contend at a double-digit win level. That's where they want you floating. They want you capable of winning 10 minimum every single year. That's what they want you capable of. Malzahn couldn't do it. It It doesn't really take a rocket scientist to figure out why he couldn't do it, but he couldn't do it. And here's the other thing that they got to do. Okay, they they are playing the long game here, and I want to tell you what I mean by that. Immediately, you got to come into Auburn, you got to compete against Nick Saban. But more and more when people are making coaching changes in the SEC, now whether this is accurate or not, I don't know because I can't know what Nick Saban's thinking. A lot of folks down here are positioning themselves for a post-Nick Saban SEC. I'm of the opinion that's a little ways off still. But 
a lot of folks down here are positioning themselves for that nonetheless. So the next Auburn hire, yeah, he's got to initially go up against Nick Saban, but the folks at Auburn, understandably so, are hoping that they're positioning themselves where we get the right guy in, we overturn the culture, we get everything in place, the wiring is fit the way we want it to, and then when Nick Saban's no longer at Alabama, unless they unless they go full Ryan Day in finding his replacement, unless they go full Lincoln Riley in finding his replacement, then we'll be positioned to surge in the SEC West. That's the thinking right now. But remember, this roster needs a lot of work by the very nature of what we just talked about was lacking under Malzahn. Certainly wasn't perfect. I don't agree with the move, but he had a lot of merit, also had a lot of problems there. So I understand the move, even if I don't necessarily put my stamp of approval on it. Roster needs work. And also, this upcoming class is very poor. So there's no immediate help on the way. So I just want to... I want to I want to whisper that that patience that, that word that no one likes to hear down there especially if you think you're paying enough to where you buy yourself out of having to wait can't do it you can't microwave the process that it takes to overturn a program and then compete with the best in the business maybe in the history of the sport there is no shortcut to that doesn't matter if you pay the next candidate 20 million dollars you don't buy your way out of having to play that longer game candidates I've heard Mario Cristobal's name out there. I've seen Hugh Freeze's name out there. I just want to tell you, I don't know how large the contingent is, but I just want to tell you there's a name that's not totally off the radar, but it is kind of out in left field right now. Now, I don't know how realistic it is. There are some people around the Auburn program who have put a bullseye on James Franklin. James Franklin feels like a fit at Auburn to me. I have no clue how obtainable or not he is. I have no clue if he has a desire to leave Penn State. I don't know. All I can confidently confirm to you is there are some people with a little bit of sway, at least, around Auburn who would love to see that happen. We'll see where this goes, but like I told you, the sentiment there as of last week from people who would know is if they do make the move, and obviously they have since then, they're pretty confident that they've got their guy locked up. Who is the guy? Well, I guess that's what this week will be for us to talk about. Uh, let's talk about some games yesterday, one in particular. Oh, boy. LSU just outright stunned Florida in the swamp last night. 37-34, for those of you who couldn't see it due to fog, 23-point favorite. Some are arguing this is one of the biggest upsets in the history of the SEC. In conference play, considering what was on the line, I'm not so sure you're wrong. And I've got several things to say about this game. Most people expected a blowout. We didn't even predict this game last week, so I'm certainly not talking to you sarcastically because uh, we saw this coming by any stretch of the imagination. But how, how crazy was this, really? Well, I'll tell you. I was looking at Bill Connolly's stuff earlier today. Occasionally, I'll reference his post-game win expectancy rate. And this is a very sometimes entertaining metric. It's a valuable metric for future predictability's purposes, but essentially what it's doing is it's ingesting all the data from the game except the final score. So it's looking essentially at the football game through numbers, and it's asking if this game, if this set of data, if this football game happened 100 times, what percentage of the time would the winner win the game? So LSU won this game last night. How often would they win this game? How about 0.6%? It's the lowest post-game win expectancy rate of the college football season, even lower than that miracle Texas pulled out against Oklahoma State. Crazy, crazy stuff. Like I said, 
I understand why a lot of you were expecting a blowout here. Number was 23, and the last thing you had seen from LSU was you had seen Alabama paint the walls with their blood the week before. So you just assumed, well, if Alabama did that, even if Florida's not as good as Alabama, I mean, goodness, LSU was a little more than a warm body last week for them to pound on for three and a half hours. This will be a walk in the park. Well, I want to take you back to that Alabama-LSU game for a second and explain to you why this ended up not being a walk in the park for Florida. You remember the game. You remember Devontae Smith lighting it up, and you remember the stats just kind of kind of like that. It was like watching that thing on Price is Right. The wheel just goes and goes and goes. You remember all that. What you may not remember is that little incident in pregame. Two hours before kickoff, Nick Saban walks in the stadium. Jamie Erdahl of CBS catches up with him. And he said, we talked about it on the show last week, he said, you know, I'm pretty sure LSU thinks they can beat Alabama tonight. These are Nick Saban's words, by the way. He said, and that's why we're going to have to come in here and we're going to have to change the way they think. That was the mentality Alabama had as a 30-point favorite. They were looking to come in there and completely and utterly salt the earth and everything in front of them. And that's what they did. When you think like that, and you have superior culture, and you have superior players, you can run over people like a tractor combine. But here's the problem. Dan Mullen did the opposite. Dan Mullen allowed his team to show up last night, assuming his opponent was already defeated. And they weren't going to have to do the work, like Alabama did. Alabama shows up knowing, all right, we got to change the way they think. And once they don't think they can beat us anymore, then we've dominated them. Dan Mullen, apparently, and Florida, right behind him, show up last night and think, LSU's going to get dominated tonight. Well, there's a crazy thing that has to happen. You actually have to do it. You have to do the dominating. It's, it's a point spread doesn't do anything. The point spread's only there because of the assumption that, well, you can take care of business by an odds maker. And so who is this on? I know a lot of you have been talking about Marco Wilson today, and I know a lot of you are talking about kickers and all this stuff. There's Collins showing you the shoe throw, defense, Todd Grantham, this and that. Let me ask you something. Uh, do you really think that that's where this game was lost? Is that what you think? I, I don't think that. I've, I've watched it already again today, and I'm of the opinion that a lot of this was decided before I even turned the game on last night. When you show up, I don't care what point spread is on a game, when you show up and you haven't mentally prepared yourself, you can't do it midway through the first quarter. There is no fabled post-game or, well, not post-game, there is no fabled halftime adjustment you can make. Once you get yourself in the soup, you're in the soup. And they weren't playing UT Chattanooga, for example. They're playing a team in LSU. It's got some athletes. They've underperformed this year, but the athletes are still there. And so it was pretty obvious early on. Florida probably in a little bit of trouble here. I'm going to get to Florida in just a second because i got a lot more to say about them. But I think you got to give, well, i got to give a lot of credit to LSU because it's been a bad week down there. It's been a really bad week. Uh, there is still a lot to deal with at LSU. But see, I had a guy come at me yesterday, and he was talking about meaningless games and folks opting out. And he asked the question in a rhetorical manner, well, why wouldn't you opt out for these meaningless games? Well, some folks have opted out because they do view the remaining games on the schedule as meaningless. But I want to tell you something. There are enough folks out there who are of the mentality that as long as they're keeping score, then it means something because they're competitors. And that's how they're wired. Not everyone's wired that way. But enough folks are wired like that to where not only are they going to show up 
And not only are they going to pour it out on the line, even if their record indicates maybe to you at home on your couch, that game's meaningless. Well, they think differently than you and they show up differently than you and they're on the field and you're on the couch because they're different than you. And to them, they're ready to go to war because it still means something. And here's the funny thing. Once you remove some of the elements from the locker room that are of the opposite mentality, some of those folks who think it is meaningless, then you can have one of those old addition by subtraction formulas. And that's what happened with LSU last night. You got a freshman. Most of you've never heard of him at quarterback. They got a scholarship bordering on, they got scholarship numbers bordering on not even enough to play. And yet once they had some folks walk out of there that you think is going to be just detrimental to the odds that they could even compete here, not only do they compete, they win. Now make no mistake about it. As much credit as is due to that team from last night, well, it doesn't change anything about the future for LSU. It certainly changes things in terms of that staff understanding who they can trust in a foxhole and, more importantly, perhaps, who they can't trust in the foxhole. And that's a future personnel decision thing. But also, it doesn't necessarily change a lot of what is messed up about LSU behind the scenes. There are a lot of things that still need fixing. They're going to need to overturn a lot in and of themselves in order to be competitive next year and years to come. All that's true, but it certainly leaves a lot better taste in your mouth on what the alternative is. And secondly, you know, I think it probably sells a lot of people down there that had been on the fence over the last week about whether a a vast majority, a, a large swath of that program had tuned Ed Orgeron out. At the very least, it has to confirm in your mind, well, that's not true. Maybe rumors of an entire mutiny, an entire uprising, maybe those were greatly exaggerated. Maybe there were some isolated pockets. Maybe some of them walked away. Uh, Maybe there was some self-policing going on at that program, and the best ones were able to do that. And maybe last night was a small, just a small result, and hopefully an indication of what you can have coming. So there was a lot of college football playoff talk after this, obviously, around Florida. And as much as you guys are talking about the Marco Wilson shoe throw last night and everything like that, you know what was one of, to me, one of the most inexplicable things that I heard in this broadcast? It wasn't the postgame scene that Dan Mullen made. It wasn't the shoe throw. That stuff, yeah, everyone heard that. I heard something that not a lot of you were talking about. During this broadcast, if you had the uh, TV feed up and you had the audio on, the broadcast crew was openly talking about conversations they had had with Dan Mullen and Todd Grantham during the week about playoff scenarios. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world are they talking about that for during a game week? They're not guaranteed anything. I can't remember the last time I turned on an Alabama game and a broadcast team details 30-minute conversations they had with Nick Saban about how they think their playoff seeding is going to pan out. In other words, taking your opponent for granted. I think this was one of the most humbling nights of Dan Mullen's career. He was in wounded animal mode. He was in full defense or denial mode in his post-game press conference. I, I, I didn't even bother to tell Colin to clip from it. It's a waste of time. You can go find it if you want to. Uh, it was fairly pathetic. I mean, the thing about it is the guy made some accurate points in his post-game, but yet it was so childish that no one really cares to hear it from him. Like someone else can make those points, not you. This is the same guy who complained about uh, the size of the crowd at Texas A&M after they lost, and now it's, well, maybe we shouldn't have been playing this game. You know, well, okay, Dan, listen, let someone else say that. Please just let someone else say that. But this was very humbling because he knows, trust me, he's keenly aware he didn't have his team ready to play last night. He had his team 
thinking that LSU was going to come in, they were going to put up a good, solid pushback, they were going to get some good work in against them for about a quarter and a half, and then they'd run up the score, and then there'd be a halftime decision about whether to leave his starters in or not. You're not Alabama. Florida's not Alabama. Uh, obviously, in terms of personnel or in terms of internal wiring. you They don't think like that, is my point. So if they don't think like that, you certainly can't afford to think like that. The entire reason they are who they are is because they don't think like that. Like, that's the whole point. So then you have the college football playoff conversation. And to me, I'm not all that focused on it because I don't think it's going to be relevant for more than one week. The conversation essentially is, well, can Florida still get in after they win or if they win the SEC championship game? Can they still get in? Like, what would have to happen? Friends, I... There are a few truths in this world, but I really think one of them is I don't think you're going to have to worry about that after Saturday. I really don't. Now, having said that, I think a lot of you are going about this argument from the wrong perspective. A lot of you are going at the 10 games played versus five or six games played thing with Ohio State. If we lose two games and they're 5-0, and you know, shouldn't we still be in because we put ourselves out there more? That's not the way to make the argument. I understand what you're saying. I've told you I think there's merit on both sides of this. Here's what you should do. You should talk to the side that's defending the Ohio State stance and then look on your side at the side that's defending the we played more games, therefore we should be rewarded for that stance. And you should say, well, let's find a compromise. Okay, you guys over there, let's say you're talking about Ohio State. You guys have played, what, six games after the Big Ten title game? Six games? Okay. Well, here's the compromise. We'll just find our best six-game stretch from this year and we'll let that be our sample size versus your sample size. So games we played versus games you played. Now, Florida's got a 6-0 stretch, obviously, in their schedule. And then we can compare resumes. Like, that's the way you should go at it. Because if they're going to look back at you and say, no, you got to count all the games you played, well, then you enter into a little bit different discussion. Having said that, though, like I said, I don't think it's going to be relevant. This is something that's going to sting. i got to refresh the computer. This is something that's going to sting for a long time. So I want you to think, as we close this and move on, I want you to think about what your perception of Florida was just 24 hours ago, going into the LSU game. You obviously expect them to win that. Even if they're just competitive against Alabama, they've got the SEC East. They were in the playoff conversation right up until the very end, maybe even after the SEC title game, depending on the way the rest of the country shook out. Recruiting has been as good this year as it's been at any point under Dan Mullen. And so you feel like there are several rungs that you're about to climb up on that ladder in years to come. Now, You imploded in the biggest moment of the year to date. You are in all likelihood going to be run by Alabama Saturday, and I think that was going to happen either way, but in all likelihood you are. Never assume. We saw last night what happens when you do that. And Georgia has surged at the end of the year. And so I was wondering, and I'm still wondering, like as we get out of this thing, what looked like a quantum leap for Florida and maybe kind of a reset button hit in the SEC East and a, a reassumption of the top of the mantle for Florida. I wonder if it's really even going to feel like that. Like when we get done with this, is it really even going to feel like Florida's the better team in the East at the end of the year? They still beat Georgia. They still got the SEC East crown. I'm not taking that away from them or anything like that. I'm just saying the way you thought you were going to feel at the end of the year as a Florida fan versus the way you're in all likelihood going to end up feeling could be night and day different. And it's all because you allowed yourself, not as a fan, but as a a CEO of that organization and Dan Mullen, you allowed yourself to show up thinking you already had an opponent beat. You can never, ever, ever let that happen. Uh, The thing about it is a lot of coaches have done that before. They have 
suffered at the hands of assuming before and allowing complacency to set in. It's just normally it happens way out of the spotlight, really early in your career. Most of the time, you're not coaching a top 10 program that's in playoff contention when you allow that to happen. So that was a tough thing to watch last night. Really, really tough. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Let's shift right quick. I got several more games to talk about. Let's shift right quick. Something that we thought may happen and we thought it may not happen. Well, it ended up not happening. Texas has announced via athletic director Chris Del Conte yesterday, they're going to keep Tom Herman. Got a lot to say about this too. Uh, You know, we got what we expected at least. We expected definitive word to come sometime during the weekend, and it did. So Tom Herman, still the head coach at Texas, This doesn't make sense in a normal world. I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday as the news broke. He follows college football. And he said, wait a second. They made a statement. They put out a, what do you mean they put out a statement? I said, yeah, they put out a statement, Texas, that Tom Herman is going to remain as the head coach. He said, if if my boss isn't going to fire me, he just expects me to show up to work Monday. Like he doesn't put out a statement saying, uh, Billy still works here, essentially. Well, Billy does not have to recruit. Tom Herman does. And so you have to send the message because the message was already out there that they were courting other potential candidates, i.e. Urban Meyer. So now we got to we got to pour water on the campfire. Like, are you afraid of the dark? We got to put it out and then let the smoke billow and you get at least one more a year here. Texas under Tom Herman is not a 100 percent lost cause. I know there's a lot of doom and gloom from folks who wanted to see a move made. I understand all that. This is not a 100 percent guaranteed lost cause. I want to take you back. Since we were talking about Auburn earlier, a lot of you know what the term Jetgate means in the world of college football. For those of you who don't, there was once upon a time a night wherein a lot of power players hopped on a private jet and flew from Auburn to Kentucky. I believe that's where they met with him. And they tried to hire Bobby Petrino right out from under Louisville and bring him back to Auburn. And it didn't work out. It leaked. And Tommy Tuberville ended up really having a lot of Teflon wrapped around him for a little while. He also went on to run off six in a row against Alabama, and now he's a U.S. senator. So I'm not saying that Tom Herman couldn't turn this thing around. I'm just saying it's insanely hard when not only you know, but the whole world knows that, dude, they didn't really even want you. It's just they couldn't get the other guy, and that's the only reason you're there. The odds are just too long for me to buy into. Like, it could happen. A lot of things could happen. The most fundamental issue here, as I said, is the whole world understands what went down. It's unfortunate that they couldn't target Urban Meyer and then keep it under wraps. But I understand why that's pretty impossible. Texas doesn't want Tom Herman. That's the painful reality. We know it. 
He now knows it. Every recruit in America knows it. And if they don't, they'll be informed by rival staffs. And so you've got every, every, think about how many people are involved in this thing. It's a giant operation. You've got your staff there. You've got your current roster there. You've also got opposing teams that recruit against you. You've got recruits. You've got potential staff hires and potential transfers, uh, the latter two of which you would hopefully use to right the ship. If you got to make coaching moves, how many elite coaches, assistant coaches out there are you going to convince to come into a place where they know from the day they arrive, their boss is on shaky ground at best, and the only reason he's there is because they couldn't find anyone better for the time being. If you're a transfer, you want to come into that? Certainly, if you're a senior in high school, is that where you want to go? Is that the piece of paper that you want to sign? It's not hard to figure out why this is not impossible, but very difficult to see panning out. But I, I'm sure there's an exception out there. Like I had someone talk to me today, and that's where the, the Tuberville example came up. And so there are exceptions. I'm just saying, you find me one exception out there of someone who has weathered that storm, that combination of factors, and has come out clean on the other side. I'll show you 50 to 100 who have failed miserably. Like the, the road of college football is littered with the careers of guys who almost got fired, and they got close enough to being fired where the world knew how close they came and therefore they could never salvage things. So I, I don't know. This seems pretty untenable at this point. But expectations being unrealistic, that's not something that I buy into at Texas. Like we were talking about expectations at Auburn. I hear this stuff all the time about Texas having unrealistic expectations. I dismiss it entirely. Just dismiss it entirely. As we Again, I've said this like five times already. As we said with Auburn. 100% investment naturally gives you an expectation of 100% return on your investment. And as far as Texas is concerned, they're different than Auburn. Number one, because they're more established than Auburn. They got deeper pockets than Auburn. They're in an infinitely more winnable annual position than Auburn is too. All those teams I mentioned, LSU, Georgia, Alabama, they don't play any of them. And they're parked right in the middle of the state that their competition that they do have to play comes to recruit. I was talking to someone over the weekend, never thought in a million years that I'd hear someone say this, said to me, you know, Oklahoma at this point views Texas A&M as their biggest recruiting rival. Can you imagine that being the state of affairs? That's where we are right now for Texas. But your expectations at Texas, I don't think that they're irrational whatsoever. Let's just lay it out. Okay, here are the demands. For a Texas fan who's 100% emotionally and financially invested what are the demands? It's not a national title every year. They don't expect their head coach to be Nick Saban. I've never heard a Texas fan say that. But here's what they expect. Number one, they want to dominate the Big 12 in recruiting. That should be the expectation at Texas if even an above average coach is there. Who are you competing against? Who could you explain away as being able to come into your state, which they're going to have to do to dominate you, and taking talent out of your state? Because no one in the state of Texas is going to dominate Texas in recruiting. It's not going to be TCU or Baylor. So it's going to be Oklahoma who comes in your state and takes your talent. Like that can't be tolerated. And it's not irrational to expect to recruit the state of Texas better than Oklahoma does. That's not irrational at all. Second thing is they want to contend for the Big 12 every year. That's not irrational. There should be no two or three year rebuild. There should be no dips at Texas. There should be at Kansas State. There absolutely should be at Oklahoma State. There should never be that. This is such an, as I said, an infinitely more winnable situation. This should be, for the head coach of Texas, what Dabo has turned the ACC into at Clemson. 
you have one more big-time rival in Oklahoma than maybe Dabo currently does in the ACC. But otherwise, look around you. Think about how disadvantaged the rest of that world in the Big 12 is, including Oklahoma, really, relative to all the resources at your disposal. And you can't get out of your own way. That's not an expectation problem. I don't think so. The other things that they want to do is they want to be competitive in the college football playoff picture, which if you're a contender in the Big 12, you're in, you're out. You probably accomplish that by default. Again, not irrational at all. And they want a head coach who can get the appreciation and honor of the culture at Texas grasped. And that's what they don't have right now. And it bothers them. It bothers them to no end. And I completely understand it. I think you have to be close to the program or have grown up around that program and that culture to fully understand it. But I understand it as much as an outsider can. So, I, I listen, I, I wish all the best to Tom Herman. I think he's in a pretty unwinnable position right now. So it would surprise me if this time next year we're not talking about Texas like we're talking about Auburn right now. How about some Week 15 reaction? Boy, there's some crazy stuff happened yesterday. Easily, for my money, the most unpredictable week of the year in college football, which is not shocking considering how deep we are into the season, how many postgame or how many preseason goals are out the window, how many postseason goals are out the window. And so let's start in Miami because that was one that got sideways in a hurry. North Carolina, 62 to 26. This was a legal hate crime that happened right there on national TV. Could not believe what I was watching. Now, it was just a couple of weeks back, I think it was around Thanksgiving week, that North Carolina played Notre Dame. And Notre Dame really limited North Carolina on the ground, which led me to speculate about this game. I wonder if Miami can do the same thing Notre Dame did. You know, really bottle up that Tar Heels run game and force them to throw the ball to win. I wonder if they could do that. Now, there was a little subplot here. Those of you who are familiar with Mac Brown's career, you probably noticed that, oh, he's playing one of his former assistants this week. Like, I think we mentioned it in passing last week. Manny Diaz, once upon a time, was the defensive coordinator for Mac Brown at Texas. Manny Diaz, currently the Miami head coach. Mac Brown, currently the North Carolina head coach. Well, there was a Brigham Young game. And BYU, tough to say that why, ran for like half a mile against Texas. Couldn't stop him. Could not stop molasses in December, Manny Diaz that day. And so Mac Brown fires him. And a lot of you probably forgot about that. Well, Mac Brown didn't forget about it. <laughs> he did not. And so they go in this game yesterday and they run for 554 total yards, which set all kinds of records. You want a padlock stat? Possibly the padlock stat of the year was hung by North Carolina, on Miami's forehead yesterday. 554 rushing yards. They averaged, per carry, 10.1 yards. They averaged a first down every time they ran the football. For the entirety of the football game, they averaged a first down. They put up 778 total yards. Some of you could not do that on Xbox if I gave you 10 tries. So number one, no, there's nothing to say about Miami at this point. Like, they... They had two big chances this year, and they got run out of the building both times. Once against Clemson, uh, even more emphatically, against North Carolina. But as much as I don't really think there's anything to say about Miami, I think a lot of folks initially dismissed how well Notre Dame handled this offense, this North Carolina offense, when they played. And I I told you, I thought it was an impressive win. And I'm glad this happened yesterday, because now you sort of get to reframe that Notre Dame performance and say, That defense did what to North Carolina? 
And now we get to frame it within the context of what's coming this Saturday, the ACC championship game. Clemson's favored by 10. We're going to break that game down on Tuesday's show. Clemson may very well win the game. They should be the favorite. They're they're the better overall team, I think. But I think you are sorely mistaken if you believe that the mere presence of Trevor Lawrence is going to enable Clemson to run up and down the field at will against Notre Dame. I don't think that there is a team that they're going to play, at least until the playoffs, maybe, that's going to do that. Maybe not even in the playoffs. Notre Dame is a very good team. They are a very sound veteran defensive team. So you may beat them, but you're not going to do it raining all over them like you've seen Clemson do in the past, like you've watched Alabama do to teams this year. Like I think a lot of folks believe, well, now that Clemson has their quarterback, it's going to probably them versus Notre Dame look a lot like Bama versus A&M. It's not the way that's going to be, I don't think. So congratulations to Mac Brown, because I'll tell you, uh, the second point that I took away is they can weaponize this game. They can weaponize it in recruiting South Florida. They can weaponize it in establishing and entrenching the culture that they want to entrench there because they needed their own big-time win this year. Like, they didn't have that program definer, and they kind of got it here. And the other thing they can do is it's the overall identity. Like, that's what they want North Carolina football to be. They want you to be scared that they're going to embarrass you. doesn't matter where you reside, South Florida. It doesn't matter if you're in Boston College. They want you thinking that way. And they got you thinking that way now. And now you got to build on it. They're recruiting very well. You got to continue to build on it. Uh, Georgia, speaking of building towards next year, beat Missouri 49 to 14. You know, Georgia, you got to give some credit here, too, I think, because they came out of that Florida game. All the initial preseason goals are out the window, and they hit the reset button. And now they're probably playing stronger football at the end of the year than anyone expected them to. Defense held Missouri to 200 total yards yesterday. And I told you, so North Carolina averaged 10.1 yards per rush against Miami. Missouri averaged one yard per rush against Georgia. Pretty good Saturday. Offense uh, threw and ran for nearly 300 yards apiece. So Georgia's offense looks really good right now. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, you look at JT Daniels' day. So I think he had 18.7 yards per completion. <laughs> That'll get it done most times. That's, that's kind of a padlock stat in and of itself. The potential for 2021 with this team is obvious. And I don't think 2021 is something you have to wait until the spring to start establishing and instilling. Uh, 2020 taught us never to assume spring to begin with. But if JT Daniels is back and we expect him to be back, and you look at what the potential is here now, you start to realize why they're playing the way they're playing. Like They have convinced their locker room, they convinced their organization, Kirby Smart really being the they, they have convinced guys up there, your 2021 season has started now. Okay, If you want to be in a position this time next year that Florida or Alabama are in, we got to start it now. And I think that's what they've done. And it's it's a lot easier to say that than it is to do it. Because when you're in a pandemic year and you think you're a national championship contender and you're out of it midway through the year, it's really easy to pack it in. A lot of other teams have done that. Georgia hadn't done that. So hats off to Kirby Smart for getting that done. Alabama, skull drug, Arkansas, 52-3. to Now, it may not look like it. Uh, in fact, it doesn't look like it at all. And if you didn't watch this game, what I'm about to tell you will shock you. Uh, Alabama struggled a little bit early. Yeah, I told you. It's going to shock you. If you're into live betting, which I peruse from time to time, you could have gotten Alabama minus 18 and a half at one point. 
in the live wagering section of your preferred sports book. Now, we were on Arkansas plus 32. That didn't pan out, obviously, but bought me some of Alabama minus 18 and a half. Hope to hit a middle there. As it turns out, I just bailed out the original wager. Did you watch any of this game? Most of you probably didn't. So you would think that if they win a game 52 to 3, then it must have been another one of those Mac Jones bombing away, Devontae Smith, let's see how many touchdowns he scored. Alabama didn't have a receiving touchdown in this whole game. Zero. Uh, Mac Jones got his numbers here. 24 of 29 for 208 yards, zero touchdowns. Devontae Smith, three catches for 22 yards, zero touchdowns. No receiving touchdowns. Tell you what they did have. They had six on the ground, and they had Devontae Smith returning a punt for a touchdown. And that's how they did it. And it was what it was. I mean, this is kind of like a machine that shows up every week, and it's programmed. It's not even, doesn't even appear to be made of humans, but just parts at this point. And whereas they show up and they methodically dissect an opponent, you had the alternative on display in Gainesville. And that's why you continue to get the results from Alabama. And it's why a lot of other programs can't seem to duplicate it week over week. It's just a different wiring. Having said that, something we don't talk about a whole lot on the show, Heisman odds shifted faster than an election after this game and then the subsequent Florida game last night. Right now... I'm looking at several sports books right before we went on the air. The pretty widely held consensus is that Mac Jones is now the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy, sitting at around minus 200 or 2-1. to one. You know who's number two? Devontae Smith. Alabama currently has the number one and number two odds-on favorites to win the Heisman Trophy. Now, we have openly stumped and will continue to stump for Devontae Smith on this show. We believe he's the best player in college football. And he should win this trophy. And right now, Mac Jones, listen, having a great season. But um, Devontae Smith is the best player I've seen this year. And I think he should win the award. For the record, you may wonder who's next in line. Well, Kyle Trask is at plus 350. So Smith's plus 250. Trask is plus 350. He was the favorite going into yesterday. Trevor Lawrence is plus 1,000. So Trevor, significant ground to make up in one game to do it in. And as for the West Coast, I wanted to hit this really, really quick because I know there's a certain network out there telling you that the winner of this game has right at a 50% chance to make the playoff, which, as we all know, is absurd. But we still need to congratulate Southern Cal. They beat UCLA 43-38. The jerseys in this game, sometimes people start saying things and then other people start repeating it, you know, like a clapping seal. And I think it's ridiculous. But what everyone else thinks about this game, I think, it's probably the best opponent-on-opponent color combo, just when it comes to jerseys, that you see. I'm a big fan. And so, what about the game? Well, Southern Cal's down 35-23 to entering the fourth quarter. All hope appears to be lost. And then here they come. Not only do they come back, they win it in the final seconds. They covered, for those of you who care about that, because that's what great teams do. Good ones win. Great ones cover. And here they are. They're undefeated. Now, as it Turns out in the Pac-12, what feels like a season that's just started is now over, and they are, what are they, 4-0, 5-0? And so they are off to the Pac-12 championship game. Now, that's great. It's certainly unexpected. In fact, I've gotten more out of both of those teams than I expected this year. Uh, But let me please inform you. The University of Southern California does not have better playoff odds than Clemson. There is nobody who would wager actual money on that nonsense. Southern Cal, if they win the Pac-12 championship game Saturday, is not going to be in the college football playoff. Clemson, if they lose Saturday, is probably not going to be in. But if they win Saturday, I can certainly tell you they will be in. And to 
ever try and sell anyone on the idea that this team, Southern Cal, is sitting at 50% to make the playoff and Clemson is under 50%, you know what? I'm not going to insult your intelligence trying to explain the math. It is absurd. So having said that, congratulations to Clay Helton and Southern Cal because this was a season that was going to be used against him as the final straw that breaks the camel's back out there. Well, you can't do it now because he hasn't lost a game. He's gone full Herman Boone. Someone walks up to him behind the stands pregame. Clay, lose a game and they'll fire you. And he pukes and then he goes and he runs the table. And now they got to play Groveton for the, for the state championship. And so uh, congratulations to Clay Helton. Now, it is a truncated schedule this week, obviously. There are not as many games, and so we are probably not going to throw six or seven or eight bets out there. Even after yesterday's debacle, we are still uh, cruising at 57% against the number. Really, really good year. Still one of our best years we've ever had. But we do have an early best bet. It's not going to be a conference championship game yet. We may move on some of those games. But we do want to grab Missouri minus one and a half at Mississippi State. Like that number. We got Missouri winning by six and a half, six and three quarter points, which would be a record if they did. That's never happened before. But our model likes Missouri by close to a touchdown. So we will take the Tigers on the road to end the season at minus one and a half. Now, Colin has four other blank spaces there on the Ramen Noodle Express. I don't know that we're going to fill all of them, but we are going to have more plays than that. That's just our early best bet. And I also want to remind you again, listen, there is a lot that's going to happen this week inevitably. There's a whole lot that's going to happen. Make sure, now more than ever, you're following me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh, so be sure to do that. I don't know if you guys have realized it, because it's conference championship weekend, coming up at least, early signing day is Wednesday. I'm looking at equipment right over here, off the camera. Uh, We are going to be, for several hours, live on all kinds of platforms Wednesday. Uh, Barton will be in here, Wilt Fong will be in here. I haven't seen those guys since March in person, by the way, just Zoom. So I can't confirm what they even look like at this point from the chest down, uh, which, you know, the more I think about it, it's probably not all that important. But anyway, we're going to have a lot of coverage Wednesday. So be looking for that. We're still doing our normal schedule this week. We'll still have shows this week. And so on the back half over back end of the show, let me remind you one more time, because I got a lot of emails this week and I wasn't taking spots this week, but this upcoming week and the next week, the next two weeks, I am booking spots right now. Zoom sessions, one-on-one, one hour apiece. For those of you who are interested in getting into this line of work or anything congruent to this line of work in sports media, and you don't necessarily know how to pull it off, you want advice, you want feedback, whatever the case may be, joshpate706 at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at LateKickJosh. Busiest week of the year coming up. Happy to have you here. We had the best week of traffic that we've had since we started this show on the YouTube channel last week. If you haven't already, subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and subscribe to the Late Kick podcast because those sometimes are different things in terms of content. And with that in mind, let's dive into this week. It is Conference Championship Week. For Director Colin, for Producer Jordan on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for joining us on a very busy Sunday night. Have a great start to your week and God bless. you
series on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.